Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the state where you're not allowed to say vagina when discussing legislation dealing with vaginas. Vagina. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and of course, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Vagina. Teen pop sensation, Justin Schieber. Vagina. And uh, Dr. Professor Luke Galen will be joining us later on in the show for our interview. Speaking of which, we are talking today with Tanya Lerman, author of When God Talks Back. We've also got some counter-apologetics coming up on religious experience, as well as polyatheism. But first, there are only two things guaranteed in life, death and tax-exempt churches. Nice spin on that. I thought you were going to say taxes and then we could quip back with, uh, oh, but it's not certain. Yeah, well. Uh, (laughs) It's as uncertain as the existence of God. That's right. Although it is quite certain now that no matter what some churches do, they will never get the IRS to do anything in response. Mm, Yeah. The story comes from Reuters. As churches get political – The IRS stays quiet. Pastor Jim Garlow, he's the head pastor of a megachurch worth $7 million, Skyline Wesleyan Church. In California. In California. And he's declared that on Sunday, October 7th, just weeks before the election, he is going to tell his his parishioners specifically to vote against President Obama. Pulpit Freedom Sunday. <laughs> yeah, it's pa- part of Pulpit Freedom Sunday, a yearly tradition since 2008, mm-hmm. where pastors try to provoke the IRS. Interestingly enough, 2008, when who was running for office? <laughs> yeah, clearly election year politics yes. going on. Yeah. Uh, because bu- because nobody's a fan of the IRS. <laughs> of course. Uh, but it, when the IRS starts picking on churches, or at least that's the perception, mm-hmm. right. oh, wow, what a good political issue that is well, to right. rally the, two, rally you know, the base. Fundamental American ideas, the separation of church and state, and freedom of speech. When you have those, you know, that's obviously going to be a politically charged issue. Right. And the IRS has good reasons to try and stay Stay out political. of the politics, yeah. Well, So real quick, though, a a little more on Pulpit Freedom Sunday. Uh, As we said, it started in 2008, and what these ministers do is they do make political pronouncements from the pulpit 
uh, endorsing a particular candidate, mm-hmm. which saying if you don't already know, under 50C3 rules for nonprofit organizations, you're allowed to, to talk argue issues. for issues. Yes. So he could say from the pulpit, he could say, I wouldn't ever vote. God doesn't want you to vote for a candidate that would support abortion. Right. Right. And but you can't say you can't vote for Barack Obama. Do not abortion, vote therefore. for Barack Obama. And what yeah, right. what they can do is even in California, when we had Proposition Eight a couple of years back, they could say you should vote yes on Proposition Eight, yeah. which would outlaw gay marriage. It's a nonpartisan. It's a, yeah. it's a ballot proposal yeah. as opposed to a partisan issue. Now, uh, on last week's show, we uh, played a clip from Charles Worley saying that he would never vote for uh, a homosexual lover. Or a baby killer, um, and of course that's that was his way of trying to say don't vote for Barack Obama. But of course, right. yeah, as we mentioned, Mitt Romney, who's running against him, also is for uh, yeah is pro-choice and well, depending on uh, the time for gay marriage, depending on yeah. uh, on when you talk to him. Yeah, but uh, they'll go as far as to record these sermons, mm-hmm. burn them onto DVDs, and, and actually send them to, send them to the IRS. The, uh, and yeah. this has been growing each year. Last year, there were 539 pastors across the and, United and States, and that wasn't even a major election this. year. Yeah. This is going to be huge this year. Um, the IRS has a sweet DVD collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of the reason why they're doing this is that they think, and I don't know if they have any legal basis for this or not, but they think they have a legal objection. They think that they can use this as, yeah. hey, look, if if money is speech in politics. Mm. Yeah, they want to get uh, into the courts. Yeah. Yeah, why why is it they're not allowed to make right. these political endorsements? Once again, and so they, they United think it ruins the world. They think it's a uh, well, yeah, and I, yeah. I don't know if legally this is tied I, to I, Citizens I United. Don't I don't know if is. they have any case whatsoever on the legal so. front, but they believe they do, mm-hmm. and they are pursuing this because they want a lawsuit and they want yeah. it to get to the courts. Uh, so in the light of that, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but the IRS is not taking the bait, mm-hmm. which is actually a kind of reversal of history for them, Yeah, even recent history. In 2004, the IRS, according to this article from Reuters, quote, created a dedicated enforcement program focused on political activity by churches and other nonprofits. It was called the Political Activities Compliance Initiative. It investigated over 80 instances where church officials were alleged to have endorsed candidates mm-hmm. during their services. Hmm. Now, it investigated it. What were their findings? Was anyone ever well? That's the thing. Lost their 501c3. These, these investigations were halted mm-hmm. in January 2009. Mm-hmm. There's been no no of these yeah. investigations have come to light. Mm-hmm. In three years now, what happened was Living World Christian Center in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, uh, successfully appealed an IRS audit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the IRS was uh, in, was I initiating an audit. Now, now they appealed it on a technicality. The technicality was that our laws make it very hard for the IRS to get away with auditing churches. One of these rules is that in order to prevent undue governmental pressure, they need to have a high-level IRS or Treasury Department official authorize the audit. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in the case of Living World Christian Center in Brooklyn, uh, the district court in Minnesota said that this wasn't the case. This was just an IRS staffer. This was not somebody of a sufficiently high-level high post to actually initiate that. Mm. And since they never went on then to develop a new set of church audit rules, right. it's impossible for them to they can't do legally initiate yeah. an audit. Mm. Is this a political ploy? Are they actually trying to avoid a potential court battle mm. over this stuff in the long run? Or is it just the fact that with this recession that we're going through, there's been so much income that's been slashed from all of these agencies they that just the IRS the just doesn't do have it. the time yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right. or to to worry about churches right now? Now, what do you guys Especially think? Especially because it's it is going to be a difficult fight. This is not something that's going to go Do you guys think that this is going to – that the IRS's hesitancy to do anything about this, do you think that's actually going to affect anything? I don't really think it will. If they're they're going to be allowed to – I mean if they're allowed to talk about social issues, it's obviously pretty clear – what candidate they're endorsing. I don't know if it would really have much significance. Well, that, that is, yeah. The thing is, I know unless there's people that are just so unfamiliar with the election <laughs> that they right. have no idea who, oh, just say a name, I'll, I'll check that well, one. Well, you know, they're going to, there are also, I mean, this is generally a conservative group that we're talking about here. But if they can do it, why can't more liberal churches do this as well and endorse their candidate. I'm sure they do. Well, I'm, uh, you're absolutely they, right. Yeah, they do. Well, yeah. And they're, they're, they can say that's the thing is they have the religious protection. Right. So now they can say this is a freedom of religion issue mm-hmm. and you're actually oppressing religious speech. If my belief is that God told me not to vote for Barack Obama, <laughs> you know, this is suppressing religious speech. Now, a a nonprofit educational organization like Center for Inquiry Michigan or Public Reality Radio or Public Reality Radio C3 we couldn't do that we couldn't no. say hey look my religious convictions are being undermined mm-hmm. by stating very firmly this is why you should vote for such a candidate right. even if our ethical principles clearly spell that out mm-hmm. which I should pause here. And say it doesn't? Yes. (laughs) Please, libertarian listeners, do not not spam our comments now. There was no implication that secular humanism leads directly to a vote for Barack Obama. No, no. Especially not with the war on civil rights he's conducting Let me just say there are plenty of very good third-party candidates in the election this year. And I will leave it at that. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. We couldn't use that same justification. Um, and as someone who who runs uh, or, or operates a 501c3, I, I know the rules. And if I were to send uh, recordings of a broadcast where we endorsed this candidate or that candidate, that would be a problem your, for yeah. us. Yeah. Um, as opposed to these churches who are really trying to force the issue. This just reminds me of what's going on right now with the Catholic bishops mm-hmm. fighting against these health care provisions that are being made. It's, that says it's, that they have to provide it's simply free birth control. They, they want all the benefits of a cozy government relationship. Mm-hmm. 
uh, tax deductions, direct subsidies from the government, but they don't want to follow any of the rules they don't whatsoever. The and the second, the second you expect them to live up to the same rules that any other group mm-hmm. would have to live by, they start screaming religious persecution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The bigger question, I suppose, is this status as a 501c3. Do churches deserve that status in the first place? Are they actual charitable organizations, yeah. as that would suggest? And there's a new uh, research uh, coming out from the Council for Secular Humanism that challenges that idea some um, with some good old-fashioned raw data to show exactly where the money from churches is really going. Yeah, that's the argument is that churches are charities to some degree. Uh, they are involved in services that are helpful to the community overall, community profits from them. Now, of course, the report from the Council for Secular Humanism really questioned the degree to which the income of a church really goes to any kind of charitable mm, giving. Right. One figure that uh, was quite telling is that the uh, the LDS, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has um, <coughs> trumpeted the fact that they've donated more than a billion dollars to charitable causes. Okay, yeah. between 1985 to 2008. When you break that down, that's not a lot each year. That's a that's almost 25 year span there. Right, and compared to how yeah. much they make, you and know, it comes out to 0.7 percent of their annual income. Yeah. so yeah. it's it's not even a percentage. Way to go, point. guys! Certainly, certainly Whereas not a tithe. Most churches, uh, they said, uh, on a calculation of resources expended by 271 U.S. congregations, it was 71 uh, percent. Yeah, of all the expenditures. Um, were operating, operating expenses, which and is, most of that goes to the minister's salary. Right. And now I know a, a lot of churches, especially small mega churches. Obviously, there's more staff involved and that sort of thing. But I know a lot of the smaller churches, when it comes to um, additional staff beyond the pastor, a lot of that is done by volunteers. The secretary yeah, right. is often a volunteer. The custodians are often volunteers. Yeah. Now, if they have custodians as paid staff, those salaries would be taxed. Of course. But yeah, like you said, most of it's all volunteer runs. So, uh, so later on in the report, the Council for Secular Humanism is going to try to uh, address the uh, what are they actually receiving in in labor hours that are untaxed. But yeah, uh, the comparison there is if operating expenses account for 71% of expenditures from religious groups, leaving, leaving only, uh, only 29%, 29% to possibly go to right. charitable giving, and even that is questionable. Right, right. But well, certainly they compare that- it to the American Red Cross, which spends 92% yeah. of its revenue directly addressing uh, the physical needs which is, of people, whereas 7.9% is spent on operating that's expenses. That's absolutely mind-blowing because we're yeah. talking about the American Red Cross, which is a huge organization, mm-hmm. huge. They employ, I don't know how many people, but certainly more than most churches, right? Quite a bit of organization. And, on. Exactly. <laughs> and and they have 8%, actually just slightly less than 8%. Right of their money goes to paying all of their staff 
and all of the other additional operating expenses. Meanwhile, the churches, 71% goes to operating expenses. They must be only incredibly 20- inefficient. Yeah, so- Absolutely. Either the American Red Cross is, is a weird outlier or churches are really awful at spending yeah. their money. The analysis here from the Council for Secular Humanism just argues they shouldn't they shouldn't be thought of as charitable institutions right. because they, they're they are not primarily much much that. closer to uh, entertainment yeah. resources, right. uh, a, some sort of entertainment service. But um, then, of course, they make spiritual contributions to, and, and that's charity as well. Spiritual except charity it's is being done it. by a pastor. Who's a paid employee too? Yeah. So that's and not say charity. That's, that's not charity. That the is income, or that's that's paying. Pay. That's paying for services. Mm-hmm. They're supporting the church because they appreciate that particular. Kind exactly. Of, They're getting something out so of there's it. There's nothing charitable there. It's, no. it's an entertainment service. We should view these uh, tax exemptions as direct subsidies to religion from the mm-hmm. government. In that, because churches are not paying their fair share. They're not paying into the commons. They're not paying any taxes. That that means municipalities need to raise that much extra income mm-hmm. from the rest of the community. So basically that right. burden gets passed on to us. Because yes. And an important part of that argument is, at least for example with property taxes, uh, which is where a lot of the – a lot of the financial breaks for churches come yeah, from. Yes, this would include parsonage exemptions. So a lot of times the ministers own property. Right. And for these mega churches, exempted. we're talking about multi-million-dollar homes. Yeah, we are talking about compounds that are totally tax exempt because they are they fall with under right. within this right. uh, tax exempt status. Well, those property taxes go to fund your firefighters. They go to fund your police. Education. They go. They go to fund a lot of the local services in the community that mm-hmm. actually churches make use of. Right. Yes. I can't. So imagine if a church burns down, call the yeah. fire department. Right. right. Exactly. If they get robbed, if you know, um, the roads that the parishioners use to get to and from the church are paid for with tax dollars. So to somebody who rejects this notion, well, it's not a subsidy. Uh, it's not even an indirect subsidy. That's part of what makes the Council for Secular Humanism's argument compelling here mm-hmm. is that it, there is a, a gap in the treasuries uh, by these institutions that are using the services of right. the public commons but not paying into them. Right. But it was interesting reading the ar- article, they, which I think we should mention, that you can get on the Council for Secular Humanism's it's also in the June Web page. issue of Center for Inquiry. Yep, and in the June issue of Free Inquiry. Uh, but what I found interesting were, I thought I was rather informed on this issue, but I was shocked to hear just how many breaks uh-huh. for various different reasons that these churches receive. It's it's absolutely amazing when you start tallying up all the sources of revenue mm-hmm. and all the breaks that they get. I guess we'll, we could just start by sharing the grand conclusion. The, the grand conclusion of this report is that the public subsidizes religion to the tune of about $71 billion every year. And the we'll tell you what they figured in there, but it should be noted that that is supposedly a conservative estimate yes. in that there are many sources of church income that they are simply not 
mm-hmm. required to report in any kind of way, so and it's almost impossible to get yeah. any kind of data of this. So whatever whatever the real number is, it's probably much it's higher upwards than upwards of seventy one billion yeah. dollars, and probably even more than that. Oh yeah, yeah. that includes things like federal income tax subsidy uh, worth an estimated. $35.3 billion. Mm-hmm. State income tax subsidy, that's $6.1 billion. Property tax subsidy, $26.2 billion. Uh, investment tax subsidy, $41 million. That's a million with an M. Parsonage subsidy, $1.2 billion. <laughs> the, you see, the parsonages of the churches I grew up in were not that nice. Right. But, uh, but there's a lot of them. Sometimes it's direct government subsidies, like right. the uh, faith-based community yeah, initiatives yeah. is uh, $2.2 billion a year. And uh, you add all that up to get the $71 billion. Yeah. Then there's all of the other stuff not covered. Yeah. What's interesting are these things that we can't ever measure. For mm-hmm. example, um, they're, religions, they're not insignificant. religious institutions can rent their property or engage for other for-profit mm-hmm. uh, activities – um, Such as weddings or concerts or anything of that nature. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Now, some of these things, like we saw with an earlier church-state case that was brought by the uh, Freedom From Religion Foundation, some of these, if, say, you're you're renting out a set of apartments or uh, uh, mm-hmm. on, on your property or if you're putting up a billboard or something, a commercial right. billboard right. on your property, yeah. that, that, is, that is income that they are required to report. We, we should mention that it's very rare that a church would ever get audited for this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, as as we notice, is, the IRS yes. <laughs> kind of keeps their hands off all but of this. But it is technically something that they are supposed to report, and if yes. a lawsuit comes, like, like the one from FFRF, mm-hmm. uh, they will get punished for it. But there are all sorts of businesses that they can run. For example, a daycare for mm-hmm. members of of the church or selling or secondhand clothing. Yeah. If if, right. if they receive anything in donations, they could run a type of goodwill service out of their church where they're selling clothing. Or uh, like a bake sale where all the goods they're selling yeah. are donated. Or a car wash or I, any of Church-related periodicals, right. uh, any of these things. Uh, meant many of them uh, would be considered related in some intang- in mm-hmm. some vague way to their purpose yeah. as a church, right. and so uh, yeah, they don't need to report any of that income. It's not taxable, mm-hmm. any of that. And in the few cases where they might be taxed, uh, it's oftentimes below the corporate tax rate, uh, which is well below the low, corporate tax but... rate. For example, uh, one of one of the examples they gave a, a property that's owned by the uh, Latter Day Saints Church. This is a huge property that was just donated to them, and donations of real estate can be mm-hmm. non-taxable as well. Yeah. Uh, they should be paying 16.8 million per year in property taxes for this one billion dollar ranch that was donated to them, but they've actually ended up only paying 300 thousand. 
Oh my god! A year. <laughs> yeah. Can anyone so, crunch so the numbers even, on, on that yeah. and figure out what uh, what percentage they're paying? Even in the rare be? cases where these uh, these services have been taxed, they're often well below uh, the the corporate tax rate. And and that's really the, the the thing that's most frustrating because it's like okay. There, I, I'm all for separation of church and state. Now, that means something different to me than it does to many of these churches. But where there is a legal reason that they have to pay taxes, they're still not paying their fair share. Render unto Caesar. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Caesar needs uh, needs his too. But, uh, yeah, it, it's so frustrating that, okay, they're paying something – but it's nowhere near what they should be paying. It's right. it's they have the government by the balls in a lot of ways. Yeah, which is which is astonishing when we look at what we just got done talking about. Yeah, where these churches um, wanting to uh, back uh, particular political exactly. It's it's the separation of church and state done wrong because again they are being afforded all of these uh, special rights, but without having to pay their dues to be a part of society and to benefit from all the things mm-hmm. that society provides. Some some other areas where we don't even know what amount of income they're bringing in is religious institutions don't pay any taxes on personal or corporate donations Mm -hmm. Mm. or donations that are actually given to them by trusts. And related to that is that religions don't pay any investment taxes. So the the -hmm. capital gains tax, for example, a lot of uh, the article says many people don't realize that religious institutions have investments. Uh, for example, the the uh, the Presbyterian Foundation manages 1.9 billion dollars in assets. Wow! But and that's not even that's not even the Catholic Church. We're not talking about um, one of the huge churches. We're talking about Presbyterians. The LDS probably has more because they have a lot of rich folks. Scientology. Can you imagine the investment Scientology has? Mm. Yeah, but that's. Usually investments like that are taxable, and uh, in in many cases, they aren't. They estimate that the investments overall held by these religious institutions reach around $18 which are completely free of investment taxes. Mm -hmm. On top of that, here's another area that's hard. We're talking more, not $71 billion. We're talking probably around $100 billion. Who who knows? Easily easily it could be that. It could be upwards of that. Uh, When when churches uh, purchase goods and supplies Mm -hmm. from the marketplace, often they are not required to pay any state sales tax. So that's another one of those where, you know, it'd be really hard to figure out exactly how much is that tax exemption exemption being used. Yeah, and, you know... It's probably going to be a lower figure than some of those others because we're talking about sales tax, mm-hmm. but, yeah. but we don't know. I mean, some of those mega churches are buying how many thousands of dollars worth of stereo equipment and other things, Yeah, you know, right. other things like that. We're, we're talking about enormous numbers here. We're talking about enormous numbers that could go into uh, the system and help improve our schools, that could help 
pay firefighters and teachers and cops a living yeah, wage. Well, that was one of the article. Uh, it says, uh, another way to illustrate the size of the subsidy may be to illustrate how much tax revenue would mm-hmm. increase at the state level if religious institutions had to pay property taxes. In Florida, for example, where the state government's budget was $69.1 billion in 2011, the amount of tax revenue lost from subsidizing religious property was $2.2 billion, or 3% of the state budget. The additional revenue would have mostly prevented the $1.1 billion cut to firefighter and police retirement plans and the one point three cut to public schools. Wow. So, I mean, this is stuff that, you know, is going to be... There are consequences for, right. for Direct these. Direct effect for, for the, the breaks churches are getting. You know, the only irrationale that would appeal to me for why we shouldn't tax these uh, mm-hmm. churches is that it could be a form of government pressure, perhaps curbing their uh, uh, their, their, their right. freedom of speech yeah, and their yeah. practice but of their as, religion. But as we've seen, they're <laughs> not at all right? suffering. I have no problem with a pastor standing up in the pulpit and saying, vote for this guy, vote for – and I, I'm – saying guy because let's face it that's the case most of the time uh vote for this guy vote for this guy as long as they're also paying property taxes and they're paying all of these other taxes fine go ahead and do it but the fact is they're doing that and they're doing it for free well not not even free they're getting benefits they're many of these pastors and many of the church employees are living large because of this. Yeah, I mean, I don't misunderstand us as saying that pastor is a, the most lucrative career oh, to get right, into. Right, right. Mega church uh, pastor is not a bad way to go. But we can certainly find uh, a lot of cases of people who are um, who are exactly that. They're living these large, luxurious lives. I mean, the whole point of a parsonage exemption in the first place was that these pastors were going to be living on meager income. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and that's most simply of them not do. the case. And quite frankly, I'm okay with pastors earning more money, too, if they live in homes like the rest of us do, where they have to pay property tax and, and that sort of thing. I have no problem with, uh, with pastors getting rich if their congregations actually want to pay them that kind of money. Right. But the idea then that they get a government break mm-hmm. based yeah. on the uh, – the, w- which the I believe the entire point of that law was to help underprivileged ministers – Sure. Uh, not put that extra financial burden on them when when that's not the reality of the case. Seems pretty yeah. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Pretty ridiculous for these guys to get rich just by dumping tons of money into their into their properties because they get that they get to write off their rental fees, their mm-hmm. mortgages, and everything else under under this. So. So now the study does not conclude this, but I'm I'm going to add this my conclusion to the study. Tax the churches. Legalize and regulate marijuana and prostitution and pump all of that money into the education system and every single problem in our country will be solved inside of a decade. Also legalize gay marriage, regulate the banks and Medicare for all. There. That's Dave's stump speech. <laughs> um, I want to read this this last quote. He had this. me at legalize marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's a... Uh, to close the article here, uh, these subsidies should be phased out, but since that's unlikely to happen, we'd accept the following alternative. 
the ability to write off our annual entertainment expenses as donations, mm. the subsidizing of all of our housing expenses, including utilities and maintenance costs, being exempt from paying taxes on businesses we start, related to our primary purpose in life, say a microbrewery, <laughs> uh, direct cash transfers to us from the government for trying to convert people to our worldviews world while claiming to provide social services, and most important, the right to host games of bingo without reporting our income as gambling revenue. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, it did have a kind of a snarky ending <laughs> right. for for what otherwise was a cold analysis. Right, yes, right. <laughs> yeah, but you know you gotta appreciate them I, that. I I should too. say too that um, the Council for Secular Humanism's figures did not quite match up with some sig- similar figures mm. uh, that Reuters was uh, mm. Reuters was discussing. For example, the property tax subsidy the. Council for Secular Humanism had at $26.2 billion, whereas Reuters, taking their figures from law professors Nina Krim and Lawrence Winner, calculated that houses of worship received $12.7 billion hmm, in quite property a, tax, that's tax quite exemptions. A now, the thing is that we have in the article, the Council for Secular Humanism article, they do tell you exactly how they tallied up that score. Right. right. So um, I'm not. I don't know that there's necessarily funny business going on with these numbers. It just means that they, the Council for Secular Humanism, probably included more things in there mm. as being examples of a subsidy sure, right. than the analysis than the analysts for Reuters did. But I don't think it, even the Reuters study would argue that. Oh, the Reuters numbers. Even if you took the Reuters yeah. numbers, the Reuters numbers are still outrageous. It is yeah. still. We'll, po- we'll post links to both uh, reports. Either way, we're talking about a lot, a lot of money. Well, we're going to transition now into today's "God Thinks Like You" segment, which is actually an interview, an interview with Tanya Lerman author of When God Talks Back. Tanya Lerman is a anthropologist uh, working for Stanford University. As part of her work, she's embedded herself in Pentecostal communities, a very specific type of Pentecostal community, uh, the Vineyard Church. The Vineyard Church is kind of like, if you wanted to characterize the Vineyard. <laughs> Lots of grapes, wine. Yeah, they're wine enthusiasts. Uh, no, it's like sideways, really, is what it comes down to. Actually, the Vineyard Church is um, the white face of Pentecostalism, I guess you might say. Mm. We generally, when we're talking about Pentecostal or charismatic movements, these would be Christians who are, um, as part of their worship practices, they might speak in tongues, mm. uh, they might deliver prophecy. These are believers in prophetic signs or spiritual gifts that uh, empower the believer. Often, oftentimes, these believers think that they are in direct personal communication with God. When they say, God told me such and such, they really mean mm. God told them yes. through some supernatural means, you know, X, Y, and Z. What's odd about the Vineyard Church is that usually... Pentecostalism is very popular amongst uh, amongst African Americans, amongst Southern whites, 
the Vineyard Church is one of those unique circumstances where it's charismatic, but it's mostly middle-class white Protestants. But anyways, it's a very interesting community, and um, one of the reasons why we were so interested in Lerman's research and wanted to get a chance to talk to her is that I think a lot of us who are skeptics and we try to actively, when we try to actively persuade believers, of course we're going to rely on rational arguments. And the things we prepare our listeners to deal with or to argue against on this show happen to be the philosophical arguments Mm -hmm. for God. But as was mentioned, in, especially in last week's episode, this was an important part of our counter-apologetics last week, most religious people do not arrive at their religious beliefs for any kind of explicitly rational reason. Mm. That in itself is not saying that they're irrational. It's just they their reasons for belief are not typically what we might say epistemic reasons for belief. Many people will say, I don't really care what your arguments say. I don't really care what the appeal to the best explanation, what the inference to the best explanation points us towards, because I hear God. Mm -hmm. God talks to me personally. I have witnessed him in my life. And for some of these believers, it's not not just the simple claim that their life experience gels with what their Mm -hmm. religious convictions are telling them. Mm-hmm. It's much more than that. They've seen these miracles take place. Right. They have heard God speaking in their own hearts, and they have no reason. How could you deny an immediate experience like that? To which we've often said in the on the podcast, look. We don't have ears in our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I could argue against that. The most I can do is try to show that other religious people of different persuasions have similar experiences. You know, they're going to trust their experience over all else. What, mm-hmm. what, more, what more rational reason can I give them to right. doubt that experience? Right. Now, some atheists will just write off these experience, experiences as total delusions, uh, that this might actually be evidence that these these people have a psychological disturbance. Mm-hmm. I, I think Sam Harris made the point, and, and, and it's this point that I, to some degree, sympathize with, that in ancient Israel, if somebody is, if God is talking to you, you become a prophet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but nowadays, we would rightly regard somebody who thinks that God is speaking directly to them as, as disturbed, mm-hmm. as delusional. While I sympathize with that comment, the fact I think we need to acknowledge is that if you look at the people who are actually making these claims, they claim to talk to God, they're not psychologically abnormal in any other way. Most of them do not show outward signs of any kind of neurosis. So we need to be careful to dismiss them as as crazy people. Uh, And Tanya Lerman doesn't dismiss them as crazy. Instead, she spent hours living with these people. Mm -hmm. She read the same books they read. She Mm -hmm. learned to pray in the manner that they prayed. And what she found was some very compelling explanations of how charismatic people can actually train themselves in a structured way to actually have these religious experiences. Hmm. So without further stalling, here's our interview with Tanya Lerman. (laughs) 
Tanya Lerman, thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, you work as both an anthropologist and an ethnographer. For those of our listeners who are not familiar with ethnography, what exactly is it that an ethnographer does? Ethnography tends to be the name given to the kind of work that sociocultural anthropologists do. And it's uh, also called participant observation or the description of participant observation. They throw themselves into the world they've come to study to the extent that they can, and they spend time in that world, they um, hang out with people, they talk to people, they do what people do, and to the extent that they can, they try to understand what it would take to live within that particular social universe. And then they write it all down. That's what the ethnography is. Now, you have personally done this kind of research yourself. Prior to embedding yourself in the Vineyard Church, what other groups did you study? I've always been interested in how um, sort of the world becomes real for people. So my first project was with middle-class people in England who called themselves magicians, which is um, initiates of the Western mysteries, Celtic priestesses, whatnot. They were... They understood themselves to be interacting with a world of of magical forces, and I I was interested in how the force became real to them. My second project was with a group of people in India called Parsi Zoroastrians, and I was interested in how they had come to be so self-critical and how that reflected their relationship with with the British. My third project was with a psychiatrist, young psychiatrist, and I was curious in the way that they came to see mental illness, the way they came to empathize with somebody else's emotional pain, and that was a world in which there were two different models for thinking about um, emotional pain, two different cultures of psychiatry, one more biomedical and one psychodynamic. Uh, your current book, When God Talks Back, it, it focuses on uh, the uh, vineyard churches, or you also refer to them as renewalist churches. Uh, how does renewalist differ from Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches? I think of the vineyard churches sort of the way that American Christianity has really changed since 1965 and towards a more immediate and interactive relationship with God. So churches like the Vineyard, people expect to experience God directly. They expect to experience God as talking back. How many evangelical churches are that kind of church? The word renewalist refers to all the churches and all people who describe themselves as charismatic, Pentecostal, or speak in tongues several times a year or more. Certainly, the vineyard churches would count as renewalist. There are probably other churches that would describe themselves as renewalist that wouldn't expect actual conversations with God. The big divide in the Christian evangelical church is between people who expect that interaction and people who do not. But exactly what kind of interaction it is. I mean, it it sort of shifts from church to church. So what people are seeking to do is to have a back-and-forth dialogue with God. And what they're doing is 
learning to listen for God in their minds and learning to listen for and pay attention to thoughts or mental images or impressions or nudges in their body that they take to be the presence of God speaking to them. Mm-hmm. And so people learn to look for these experiences and they kind of they actually become better at identifying these experiences, responding to them. They become more and more confident that, it, that it's God. Again, how widespread this style of prayer is, people give different estimates, but it's something like somewhere between 40 and 50% of American evangelicals, I think, seek to experience God in this back-and-forth kind of way. You mentioned that when some of the people are uh, are praying and they get these images, that there are sometimes they're well aware that the fact that the images might actually be just produced by themselves, that they're just reflections of their own consciousness, but so that they have then what what they call tests of discernment. So, for example, one of them you mentioned was that the they would see whether it is a, a thought or a, or a intuition they would have had otherwise, and, and if it's something that sounds like them, that it was viewed as not being from God. So, like, could you talk a little bit about how what were some of the other tests of discernment that allowed them to see the difference between their own thoughts and and God speaking to them? So, people talked about four different kinds of ways to discern. One is that the thought is spontaneous, it pops into your mind. Another is that the thought is consonant with who they understand God to be. Um, In this case, a, a loving, caring God, not a judgmental God. When you hear God, it should feel good, and it should give you peace. And so if you're having a thought and you think it's a candidate for something that God might have said, and you're not feeling good. That's a, that's a, suggests that it wasn't really God. And people also do what they call testing the word. So they will ask other people to pray for them and see what experiences they have in prayer, or they'll look for other things in the material world that seem to con- confirm or contradict what they're interpreting to be God's presence. But it's it's important to understand that as God becomes more and more intimate and more and more experienced as as a conversation, in conversation, people become acutely aware that they may be interpreting the wrong kind of, may be drawing the wrong kind of interpretation. And so God, there's this kind of paradox that people become more and more confident of God's presence but they also become more and more hesitant to be absolutely confident that their interpretation is correct. You've spoken before about what you call the problem of presence that faces many believers. When you believe that God is going to answer your prayers, and when you believe that God's going to be personally communicating and present in your life, those are risky predictions. What if people don't have their prayers answered? in the way they expected, or they don't feel God's presence in the way that they had hoped. But you believe these communities have developed ways of coping with the problem of presence. In fact, they have techniques by which they actively train themselves to hear God and feel his presence. So people are looking for God's uh, presence 
through those interactive signs. So, you know, a, a thought that pops into your mind, uh, a mental image that pops into your mind. And they become better over time at recognizing what for them becomes the, you know, God's voice. And they say things like, you know, I, I've begun to recognize God's voice the way I recognize my mom's voice on the phone. And, and it's sort of a way of reading the body. One of the things that I, I, that was sort of revelatory to me was that it would seem that if you are demanding that God show up all the time, it might be very disappointing if, because there might be times when you don't feel that, as, as you point out. But it's also true that in a funny way, it's a way to deal with the sense of God's absence. Mm-hmm. Because if you make, if you learn to pay attention to your experience, so you um, become aware of what you call God's presence, and you know, you, I don't have a, I, I don't feel like I'm qualified to say whether it's really God or not, or whether God right. is real or not. But I, I can say that people do learn to pay attention in such a way that they feel that they recognize God's presence. But if you recognize that God's presence, you also recognize his absence. And what I saw in the church was that people would talk about times when God went away, when God seemed not to be listening. And what was interesting to reflect on is that this allowed them that sense of questioning if you know if even if you're a pretty staunch believer i mean i think there are times every christian goes through when it they do feel disappointed and having such a uh, sense that you feel god's presence and that you recognize his absence it gives you more confidence that you'll feel his presence again and it makes sense of that sense of absence i found that really interesting that this group actually does tolerate a certain degree of doubt or not just even doubt because they have such a personal view of who this God is. There's a lot of leeway in the type of emotions and interactions you can have with God. You're allowed in the Vineyard Church, for example, to get angry or impatient or frustrated with God. They're they're encouraged to experience a whole range of emotions that they would have towards any other normal human being. One of the things that I also found fascinating about your book was the kind of active encouragement they get to visualize God or kind of make believe that God is in the room with them. I heard on a lecture of yours that they would actually pour a cup of coffee for God or set a place setting for God at the table. Well, my favorite example is date night with God. And people, only women, but women would like, get a sandwich, and uh, I first came across date night when I was in Chicago, and they'd get a sandwich, and they'd go down to the the lake, and they'd sit with God on the park bench eating their sandwich. And, uh, you know, or, or like another thing that people did a lot is that they would ask God what shirt they should wear in the morning. You know, it's not as if they really expected that God cared about their their shirt. It's not that they didn't expect that God cared about their shirt. The way they would talk about it was that they were learning to hear God speak in the little ways so that they could learn to hear God when it really counted. So 
So I found, and this I did through experimental work, that people who were more likely to report that they'd experienced God vividly also scored more highly on the psychological measure of absorption, which is basically the capacity to be caught up in your imagination. And And I also found that as people prayed more, they seemed to be training that capacity to be caught up. And, of course, you can read that from two perspectives. You can say, oh, gee, this proves that God is imaginary. You can also say that, look, if you're going to experience God, you've got to use your imagination because God is not visible in the world. And so uh, what I saw was that people who practiced these prayer techniques, you know, going for a date with God sounds like very frivolous, but but using the imagination to know God in this intimate, interactive way goes way back to the early, you know, early years of the church. I mean, you've said that they they feel silly too. Yeah. I mean, to set a place at the table for God, I'm sure there's plenty of eyes that are rolling in the in the room. But the idea is that they're they're practicing, even if it might feel silly. I think maybe the idea is that they it shouldn't. But did, did you meet any members in this group that weren't responsive to that type of practice? What about the people who tried really, really hard to have these kind of personal encounters with God and, and just couldn't? I found that about a quarter of the church, at least by counting in the way that I, in the way that I did, um, had a tougher time hearing God speak back and having this more vivid, interactive relationship with God. And one of the things that was true of the, the church's first in time is that it was actually sort of soothing to have an anthropologist come around and point this out because those people were more likely to be lower, you know, on this psychological measure of absorption. And sometimes, you know, and it sort of seemed to me that there was something temperamental or something in the way that they were comfortable in using their imagination that was making it tough. And it was easy for them to draw the conclusion that God just didn't love them as much as he loved other people. And they knew that this was a little silly. They knew that, you know, there, you know, people will quote from Corinthians and say that, you know, people have different kinds of gifts. But it's also true if there are other people in the church who are going for a date night with God and they're, it feels like God is whispering in their ear all the time, and that doesn't happen to you. It can feel kind of your fault. Yeah, I mean, what what's wrong with me? Why can't I hear this? Well, yeah, I was actually wondering about the at the other end of the absorption curve, or the, there were the people you talked about who are these the skilled prayer warriors. These are people, and you thought that maybe that they were because they were high in absorption, they were extra good at discerning these messages. You, you also mentioned in the book, though, the in the therapy context, like in secular therapy, there was that scandal back in the 80s of the repressed memory, the recovered memory abuse scandal, where people were encouraged to, you know, focus on their dreams and images, and they use hypnosis to recover these memories that turned out not to be valid. So I was wondering if there's any danger 
in encouraging people who seem to be very good at this sort of thing too to go with the flow if that's what it, you know or, or to focus on their intuitions and and as if they were real is there any danger in producing that because they might come up with images or intuitions that aren't real or that they could be destructive yeah i that it's a really good question and i think from my perspective i saw that most clearly we're in the domain of demons. So if you're a church that takes the Bible literally or near literally, uh, it's pretty hard to avoid talk of demons because Jesus spends most of his time in the Gospels getting rid of demons. And so demons are present in to members of, this, of these congregations. And they take them more or less uh, seriously. So... For an awful lot of the people that I met, demons were part of what you could use to make sense of the world, but they weren't very salient to your everyday life. So you knew they existed, but they didn't they weren't very real to you. The people who were very high in absorption and who loved to pray um, would also sometimes get captivated by the idea that they were going to pray against the, the evils of the world. And so there's this idea of spiritual warfare that we're all, uh, we're all involved in a battle against evil and, and the people who are doing the praying are the ones who are actively working against the evil. And for some people, that this could become so real to them that they would see demons everywhere. They begin to feel them. They begin to smell them. I'm thinking of one 19-year-old girl who got so absorbed in this and very excited about praying against demons and she would walk city streets and pray against the demons and she would walk into restaurants and she would smell the demons and she would pray against the demons. And it was overwhelming. I mean, you know, this is back in the Iraq War and, like, my goodness, I mean, it's one 19-year-old kid and this is this war. And that, I thought, could be very costly for people. So I found your book really fascinating about how these people in the Vineyard Church actually come to experience uh, what they believe is God. But I also found really interesting the parallels that you drew between Vineyard Church Christians and the magic-practicing pagans that you studied. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I find that so fascinating is that it, it's evidence to suggest that these processes by which one learns to visualize and uh, imagine and, and have these kinds of supernatural experiences, that they're not limited to one particular religious worldview. So I was wondering if you could share more about the parallels between the Vineyard Church and uh, the kind of New Age magic practitioners. So I distinguish between the technology of prayer and the ontology or the theology. So there's a question of how people learn to use their minds, which has a psychological impact. And then there is the question of what, whether what they experience is really true. Um, I think that you look around the world and there are two big kinds of spiritual, mental practice and what you'd loosely call prayer. One of those types is 
actively using your imagination. And you find this in shamanism, you find it in Renaissance magic, you find it in Tibetan Buddhism, you find it in early Christianity, you find it in the evangelical churches that I spend time in. The, the other type is trying to disattend to what's going on in your mind, almost trying to get it, your imagination out of your mind. And both of these practices are trying to detach your attention from the everyday world. So when you meditate or you do centering prayer or you do different kinds of silence meditations, you're trying to not pay attention to your thoughts, you're trying not to pay attention to the phone ringing, you're trying not to pay attention to anything. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. If you do the, these imagination-rich practices, you're basically allowing the vividness of your imagination to carry you away not only from the outside world, but from you know what you, what you need to buy for dinner. And it's effective because it also helps you to experience the stuff of the imagination is more real. So the magicians were, you know, my, my first magical exercise was uh, I had to shut my eyes and imagine that I was flying out of my body into a garden that I built in the sky. And I would, for 15 minutes a day, I would go to this garden and I would build an altar and I would you know, find a chalice and I would... You know, I would I would garden the garden. I would bring in flowers, and as I did this, that garden became more and more alive to me in my mind, and it worked to distract me from the everyday more effectively. I mean, I've for a brief time I experimented with some of these meditation techniques and stuff too, and uh, I guess I'm just not a very visual person, or it didn't work for me, but. Uh, but but you felt that the strength of these visualizations really grew more vivid over time, like you actually see these things? Yes, and in fact, experimentally, I was able to demonstrate that on average, um, the mental imagery does go, grow more vivid for people, and that's true in the, the church, it's true, it was true for the witches. People reach out for, sen- for inner sensory imagery in different ways. So there are people who are really comfortable with visual imagery. Some people are better with auditory imagery. Some people, you know, it's more effective if they use, uh, you know, they use smell or they feel the heat on their skin. But what I think I saw in these two different domains is that people, when they use their mind like this in in a consistent way, so the experiment I ran, I had people do it for half an hour a day for a month. And I had this you know, pretty structured um, inner sense exercise where people are seeing and they're hearing and they're feeling and they're, um, they're, they're smelling. And uh, people do report what they imagine becomes more real. Mm. It's not clear how much it transfers. So if you do these kind of guided do these exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not always clear that you're going to be better at visualizing what's on your desk the next right. day. But the, you know, what you're really doing is like, um, let's say you're doing this exercise with the Annunciation, and mm-hmm. you ask yourself to 
imagine what Mary looks like. Like look at the look at the expression on her face. She's fourteen. She's discovered she's pregnant. How is she feeling? And what you're doing is you're bringing into your sense of Mary your own memories of being fourteen, the expectations of other you know seeing other fourteen year old kids. You know what you think of. You know, is she afraid? Is she happy? Is she ecstatic? What does the angel look like? You're bringing in a lot of your own experience. You're building it up. You're creating a scene that gets more and more vivid for you. The longer that you spend time in that scene, and it becomes more memorable for for you. And I think when you revisit that scene, it it. For many people, it feels like it's it's more clear somehow. And so as people practice visualizing God or hearing his voice, you say it becomes something that's always on their mind. So you bump into a friend that you haven't seen in years and you think, well, maybe God has led me to this friend or you get a strange phone call or some sort of idea pops in your head and it becomes easier to think that this is not just your imagination, this is not just a coincidence, that God is really communicating to his followers through these events. Yeah. And I, what I think it's helpful to draw our attention to is that part of the story is just paying attention to the normal kind of texture of human thought. Mm-hmm. There's some thoughts that seem to pop into your mind. There's some thoughts that seem stronger than other thoughts. There's some thoughts that are more not me than other thoughts. And so part of what these folks are doing is that they are paying attention to those differences. Mm-hmm. The other thing they're doing is trying to direct the way they pay attention so that they pay attention to the you know, the good, helpful thoughts and they disattend to the fearful, anxious thoughts. And and so it's not only uh, a kind of, you know, honing of the attention, but it's the honing of attention so that they're more aware of what they take to be God. So I came away pretty impressed by the process. I thought that you know, whatever you make metaphysically of what's going on, it's a way of training your imaginations and rewarding imaginations kind of more available to you. It's just so fascinating what our brains are capable of, especially our brains interacting together in in social groups. Well, thank you so much again, Tanya Lerman, for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. I'm so happy I came across your book. Uh, For our listeners, again, the name of that book is When God Talks Back, Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God. And Dr. Lerman, thank you again for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Thank you. So for a brief counter-apologetics that I think goes well with our interview I want to quickly examine the argument from religious experience, Mm -hmm. which is actually one I don't think we've ever dealt with on the show before. I find that hard to imagine, but I I think you may be right. 
I think it's easy for atheists, and I think I'm even guilty of this a little bit myself, to quickly dismiss this argument as not possibly having any merit. Like one of those that's, you know, the cosmological argument, okay, let's talk about that. There's Mm -hmm. interesting things that go on in physics, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, even even irreducible complexity and some of these ideas that are really silly superficially seem to have some good empirical evidence sure. for them. But arguments from experience, my gosh, right? What religion doesn't have adherents who hmm. have strong religious experiences? And since their doctrines happen to contradict, can we take experiential evidence from any of them right. as support for the proposition that God exists? Well, I don't think the argument from religious experience is a particularly strong one. There are some – it is far more influential than many of us realize. In fact, there are yeah. some serious philosophers of religion who've taken this up and made it a cornerstone of their argument. And, and I think it's one that beyond the apologetic sphere, it's one that your everyday – religious people adhere to probably more than most of the philosophical, theological arguments we've talked about on the show. Yeah. This is the way people experience their religion, is through their own personal experiences, whether it's, you know, a vision or um, hearing God tell them to do something. This is, my mom doesn't study theology, but she knows her personal experience with God. Exactly. Uh, Richard Swinburne is one example of an apologist who who spent quite a bit of time arguing for the argument from religious experience. If you're not familiar with Richard Swinburne, he's he's one of the A-list apologists. He is a philosopher of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, not just some quack with he's a blog. Not, he's not a Frank Turek. He's not a uh, he's not a Josh McDowell. He's not one of these non-philosophers who cobble together a mm-hmm. bunch of bits of selected evidence here and there and, and make a really hokey argument. Uh, th- this is someone who's he is well trained in probability arguments. He uses a lot of Bayesian inferences mm-hmm. to argue for God. In other words, his style, his his manner of argumentation is something I would take seriously. So what Swinburne will do is he will tie together all the various different empirical arguments for God and philosophical arguments. He'll talk about the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, the argument for miracles, and so on. And he will show how how each of them influence the probability, the Prior likelihood probability, yeah. that God exists. Hmm. In his book, The Existence of God, chapter 13, he switches to this religious experience argument because he believes all of the rest of the arguments for God are not quite enough to make the probability that God exists greater than the probability that he doesn't and exist. And he's right about that. He is most certainly right about that. <laughs> Uh, so the, this argument, argument from religious experience is absolutely crucial to his system because he believes this is the one mm-hmm. that really tips the scales. This is the one that we can't ignore. His initial argument for this is actually pretty simple. His main argument comes from what he calls the principle of credulity. Yeah, uh, check your laughter, boys. Uh, <laughs> which usually we think of credulity as a bad thing. Yes. But he says this: uh, the principle of credulity allows one to infer from the fact 
that it seems a person or something is present to the probability that it is present. So a more formalized rendering of this is that if it seems epistemically to subject S that X is present, then probably X is present. And his so it's like a, an appeal to intuition in a sense. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it, it may seem it's, it's more of an appeal to common sense or just um, trusting our, our sense modalities. Those kind of well, I'm saying the urge to laugh at this outright. So we're just going to credulously, we're going to call it credulity, hmm. and we're we're just going to accept whatever the data of our senses and experience tell us, especially right. knowing how often our experience causes us to err. Right. It seems ridiculous. His idea is more that we just need this as a tool. He doesn't say in an unchecked way, whenever we think we're experiencing something, mm-hmm. right. it must be true. He's saying it just is something that can factor into our probability estimates. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying. We don't disregard testimony of an experience, even if it's way out there. Uh, It's still an experience. And his justification for using this principle of credulity is that he says without it, we would fall into a skeptical bog. We would never be able to get outside of our own experiences, the phenomenology of the world, as it were, to see that the real things that exist behind them. Uh, So he basically wants to say, in the same way that I walk into a room uh, and say, I see a table, I'm perceiving a table, therefore a table probably exists, Mm -hmm. that a skeptic can't just say, oh, well, you don't know for sure that a table exists. You don't have absolute confidence uh, he would say, you know what, seeing it, perceiving it is enough. Right. And he says and if we're going to – he's the end all. But no, claiming, no. But that's a very uh, practical approach to But it factors into life. your probability. Right. I'm still not sure that's the best principle to base our judgments on here, but I don't think it's as radical as it is. When as it comes it to a table, it blush. works. Yeah. Yes, and that's part of that's the, the, part of the, the critique is yeah. that when it comes to a table, we know the conditions under which – it's likely to perceive a table and the conditions under which someone might be delusional. (laughs) So we have no problem going, I see a table, everybody else sees a table, therefore there's a table here. We also, and this is going to be part of the challenge that might stick in Swinburne's craw a bit, is that we would also say if I saw a table and Justin and Dave didn't see a table in here, right? The fact that you didn't see a table might factor into probability estimates too, uh, yeah, <laughs> as to absolutely. whether or not the table exists. Yes. So, so we'll we'll return back to that thought in a moment. But we're gonna turn the tables on them. Sorry. Move on. Luke's not here. Someone had to do it. Yeah. Our obligatory pun humor for the episode. <laughs> Here are the set of conditions that Swinburne attaches to his principle of credulity. This is, this is when principle of credulity goes wrong. The first condition is whenever the subject was unreliable or that experience occurred under conditions that in the past have been unreliable. So we're talking, uh, an example of this might be if somebody's on LSD. Mm, right. Sure. 
so, or somebody just took four grams of dried mushrooms and they're talking to God. Well, we, we kind of know the conditions that uh, right. psychoactive substances provoke right. in people. We know their judgments aren't necessarily reliable. The big Pac-Man that's chasing them around the room and trying <laughs> to eat them is also not going to factor into our probability. Is you this know, coming not, from personal experience? Yeah. <laughs> the details are a little no, bit... No, no, uh, no. Okay. never right. encountered Pac-Man in any of my hallucinogenic <laughs> trips. Uh, <laughs> listeners are free to chime in with their own trip reports. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'd love to hear them. The second criteria is that is very similar. It's just to say circumstances uh, where similar perceptual claims have proven to be false. If those situations, if those circumstances obtain, then also uh, not give any merit to this. Yes, of course. which I, I I almost think that's just the same rule. I don't see much of yeah. a distinction nah. there. It might be a difference between uh, cognitive faculties operating correctly or something external influencing your perceptions. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, like a okay. like a mirage. Like you're on drugs or you're on yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. The third challenge is that um, if there's strong evidence that X doesn't exist, then any kind of uh, perception of it shouldn't factor into our probabilities. Now, the kind of interesting move with this one is that notice it puts the places the burden of proof onto yeah. the atheist yep. here mm-hmm. because the atheist has to prove that God doesn't exist or come that there's or strong that very, very, very strong for it. case that it isn't right. bef- before we can dismiss that. So we have to provide strong evidence that there is not a gremlin sitting in the corner of the room in order to make it a safe assumption that there isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, the fourth and final limit would be to show that although X is present, the appearance of X, so person, somebody had a religious experience, the appearance of this entity could be explained through completely different ways. Mm-hmm. And so my, my initial response after reading Lerman's research and thinking about this argument was to say, well, Lerman actually really provides us pretty good grounds, even if we accept Swinburne's criteria, this principle of credulity. Hmm. Lerman's research gives us some pretty good grounds for dismissing a wide swath of religious experience. Why? Because, well, that final criteria, we can account for these religious experiences in a different way Mm -hmm. as a process of social conditioning Mm -hmm. and learning. Mm -hmm. But there's a little catch. The catch is... And this is one of those simple but clever moves by a apologist that is just so damn frustrating, <laughs> is that he says, if God exists, then everything causally that happens might be determined by God. I mean, mm. we cannot say... That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's our ace in the hole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> everything. So if, if we see a table when there is no table, well... Maybe God made you see the table. Well, he's 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 pressing us into a scenario where we have to beg the question. Yeah. And in fact, even Lerman, I think, kind of obeys this boundary, observes this boundary in the conclusions she'll draw from her own research mm-hmm. in that, well, it's perfectly possible that God learns to speak to these people through this Psychosis process of or, this yeah. process of social learning. Yeah, yeah. And so we can't say 
we can't say causally that God's not the uh, uh, the reason behind it. So sure. there, there's a clever without okay. without accepting right. the burden of proof without right. with, or right. without engaging in circular reasoning. The other the the other initial objection I had was that well, if we're talking if we're excluding altered states of consciousness, some of Lerman's research on the end talking about the you know people's visual imagery, the intensity of their visual imagery really almost makes a case to me on the face of it that this is a kind of altered state of experience. It's not like dropping acid. No, but you don't have to take acid in order to have an altered state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. You can meditate yourself into an altered yeah. state of consciousness. But the key part about that, that those first two exceptions mm -hmm. is that to be able to judge whether or not they hold, uh, you have to be able to – basically you have to show that these are unreliable experiences. In other words, you would need to kind of have some sort of baseline as to how often God talks to people anyways right. To, right. to even be able to tell if mm -hmm. these social conditions of learning are, are an unreliable. So again, it's the burden of proof is on the atheist to show that God doesn't exist. Yeah to say these these are unreliable conditions in the first place without begging the question, that is. So what to make of all of this? I want to share real briefly some conclusions of my own and then uh, another another way to respond to uh, Swinburne's, Swinburne's argument. I think one of the keys here is noticing not just that people have these religious experiences, but that there is content to these experiences. Yeah. See, one of the reasons why Swinburne doesn't think religious uh, experiences are unreliable is because even if people of multiple religions have them, I mean, if they experience God in some way, that could just be God by different names. Right, so right. we don't know of that course. God in general hasn't been disproven. Maybe some specific claims about God, but uh, uh, we might still allow that a great many of religious experiences are reconcilable on some levels. Hmm. But at least in the types of experiences Tanya Lerman is talking about, the content to them is explicit. Mm -hmm. God is telling them certain things. Right. And it's not surprising then that people who have experiences of this nature tend to see whatever culturally they've been instructed mm -hmm. to see. If Lerman can use these exact same methods, uh, has witnessed these exact same methods being used by Wiccans, for example, who don't see God but see a goddess. Right, right. Uh, who yeah. don't see evidence of their prayers coming to, coming to fruition but see evidence of their sympathetic magic. Mm -hmm controlling the world out there. Those are contradictory claims, but more importantly, they are a sign that they're coming from culturally conditioned background beliefs. Just like demon possessions. Yeah. They, they always have the same shape and feel of the culture that you're coming out of. Or pareidolia. When yep. people, when people, and I, I don't see why that shouldn't count as a religious experience. I don't see why the principle of credulity shouldn't apply to, I think I'm seeing the Virgin Mary on mm -hmm. a potato chip. Of course. Right? Right, right. And, and even there, if you were to say, oh, well, we know how those patterns happen in potato chips, 
uh, Swinburne could still say, well, maybe that's how God decides to talk that's to people through yeah. potato chips. <laughs> so, so it's, it's not that other people have these experiences. It is that they are culturally conditioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christians don't see Shiva in the right. smoke coming from the Twin Towers. They mm-hmm. see Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even though Hind- Shiva was there. Hindus, Hindus don't see Mother Teresa in cinnamon buns. They see Hindu deities. Maybe they see Mohammed, but they can't recognize him because there's no images of him. There you go. There's images of Mohammed everywhere. Yeah, my potato chip bag is full of images of Mohammed, but I... I think I'm going to race home to try to get that one on Facebook before you do. Damn it. Take a picture of a tortilla with nothing on it. Do you see it? It's so Muhammad. <laughs> and, and the question is, would that be blasphemous? It would it count as a depiction uh, of or Muhammad? a miracle? I I claim miracle. <laughs> yeah, boy, that'll make their heads turn. <laughs> their heads will be spinning like a whirling dervish. But yes, the the cultural context and how how that influences the type of imagery that will be seen, I think, together yeah. makes a makes a case on the face of it. That number two, the conditions, the conditions here are not reliable. So that's, that's my attempt at critiquing Swinburne. I'm not a professional philosopher of, I I wouldn't know necessarily if that's enough to take him down. But real quick, I will bring in what a pro has said about this. Uh, Michael Martin in his book, Atheism, a Philosophical Justification, challenges Swinburne by saying, he says quite simply, if we're going to accept this principle of credulity, then there's no reason to say, well, that there isn't a negative principle of credulity. Hmm. That is, when we don't witness things, when we don't witness tables, we have probability that that increases their probability that they're not there. Mm -hmm. Swinburne's defense to this is to say, well, we know the conditions under which we should see a table if it's there. Right. And we know the conditions in which we should not see a table if it's not there. We don't have that for God. So it's kind of unfair uh, when we're judging whether or not these experiences count of God Ooh. without that background mm. knowledge. It's mm-hmm. kind of unfair. Really? Yeah. Kind of which a is, dumb move, I yeah, think. Yeah, because then now you're kind of... You're kind of pulling the rug out from under you exactly. as you assess any probability claim about yeah. And that's what Martin does. And if there's any doubt for anyone, he formalizes it into a probability argument. And mm-hmm. just in terms, and he, and he points out, look, if you don't know, if Swinburne's admitting here that you don't know the set of circumstances uh, in which an experience like this is possible – then that weakens your probability claim. Yeah, absolutely. That that means yeah. for any experience of God, uh, the probability you can attach to that goes way down. Mm-hmm. Uh, Swinburne has one last kind of, I think, pitiful attempt to, to resurrect <laughs> this, and I, I want to share it because it's so quick and easy. And it uses penguins, so it's awesome. Oh, sweet. <laughs> we don't get enough penguins on this show. Swinburne tries to say that a principle of credulity is something we should stick to, but a negative principle of credulity cannot apply. And this is his reasoning. He says, if it seems to 50 people that there are no dodos, this is not good grounds for supposing there are no dodos, which almost seems to refute it right there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't go from negative observations. 
But if it seems to 50 people that there are dodos, then this is good grounds for supposing supposing that there are. The response is simple and straightforward. Uh, Martin says, by way of contrast, if 50 people experienced the absence of dodos in certain locations on the island of Mauritius, this would indeed be evidence of their absence on this island and elsewhere since our background theory of these locations are the only places where dodos have been found. Rather, if 50 people did report seeing dodos in the minter, middle of winter in Alaska, this would not be taken seriously given our background knowledge. And he says this is the key point. This is how he hammers this back on Swinburne's side. We don't know. We don't have background knowledge enough to know when God will be experienced again, as Swinburne admits, what the right conditions will be. And so Martin concludes from that, you can make no inferences concerning his existence or lack of existence just from experiences or non-experiences right. of his presence. Hmm. So he tosses out the whole thing. Yeah. He, he says, you know, that that sticking point about the proper conditions right. yeah. under which these experiences are reliable or not, we simply don't have data. And the, and the thing is, is it can almost be a little bit stronger than that if 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 we tie it to a specific theology. Certainly. Swinburne generally defends a kind of vague theistic God. Um, he doesn't really, I mean, other than his, his resurrection arguments, he doesn't really get into... I mean, he's a full-fledged Christian. He's just not going to argue right. for these yeah. things. He, yeah, he think, he he's argues smart enough that, to know that that's yeah. right. much more and difficult. And so when, when, you, when, you, when you say, okay, this is your conclusion, you want the Christian God at the end of this, um, there are certain possible contention points between what the Bible says about God and, and yeah. his relationship to humans... And perception. So there's wise. danger in do- in adopting a specific background theory that would tell exactly. us. And that's yeah. why he wants to keep it vague. And that's how a lot of his arguments, uh, I think, um, yeah. hmm. are compelling. Is because if you keep them vague, um, then if you don't have that background knowledge, the less you commit to, the less you have to defend. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Well, anyways, believe it or not, there are. A lot more interesting things that could be said about this argument from religious experience that uh, we'll probably take on on this show at some point in the future. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on to some polyatheism. Well, there are many gods who talk to people and tell them what to eat, who to kill, and what to sleep with. This time in polyatheism, we're taking a look at a god who really listens, listens to each of us, and then narks on us. Douche. Yeah. Today's god comes to us from the People's Republic of China. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So Chun is one, go- is one guy in Red China who isn't afraid to name names. In fact, it's kind of his job. You see, So Chun is the kitchen god, and he lives over your stove and keeps tabs on everything that goes on in your house. Such a perfect god for Chinese. You've got to love it, right? Uh, Chinese mythology is fascinating because you have gods who rule through bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Sochan is a middle management god who does your annual review and files it with the Jade Emperor. 
The Jade Emperor is the top god, but rather than hurling lightning bolts of judgment, he rules through the principle of woo-wee, which is much less fun than it sounds. Woo-wee! Woo-wee actually means the principle of least action. So he rules by doing as little as possible. (laughs) Awesome. Essentially, he's running a libertarian government. Just stay out of it and people will work it out themselves. Frankly, it sounds naive and selfish to me. And honestly, what's the point of being a head of state who believes that the state shouldn't have any power? I mean, really, what kind of an a-hole does that? <coughs> Ron Paul. <coughs> Total racist. <coughs> oh, okay. Would, would it be... Would it be okay for me to inject in a in a very funny, lighthearted segment something Sir. that's boring and detail oriented? Sure. But I will defend the Taoists were not libertarians. Uh, no, no, though, no. Though that you're <laughs> certainly right. Uh, Wu Wei does does sound it is it does extol mm-hmm. the it does extol the politician who does very little. Yeah, absolutely. But just for for listeners knowing the background, this is against the Confucian system where. Yes, Every is. bit of behavior that you did had to be ritualized. Yes. The bureaucracy was intense. The amount of control over people's lives mm-hmm. and the risk to their reputations for any deviation from the social norms was extreme. And the Taoists said, you know what? This isn't making us better people. Yeah, exactly. It yes. would be far more better if we just stuck to our human nature and followed that. And, you know, a lot of times conflicts are made worse when these kings come in and start laying down orders. Just let people do what comes naturally and the the person will govern well uh, without doing anything. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Daniel Tosh that said uh, that Wu Wei was evidence that he just thought he was lazy his whole life. Turns out he's a Taoist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, anyway, So Chan, like any good crooked politician, can be bribed. If you smear honey or sweet paste on his lips, he will only be able to speak sweet words about you. Get it? Uh, honey and the sweet words. So – that's what Sochan does, observe and report. But what's really interesting about Sochan is how he got the gig as kitchen god. See, he started out as just a regular guy, not even a particularly good guy. Like so many midlife crisis suffering sacks of shite, Sochan left his loving wife for a younger woman. He and that little home-wrecking trollop hopped into his convertible, <laughs> hair plugs flapping in the breeze, and went off to live like a couple of damn fool, irresponsible kids. And yeah, I don't know why I seem to have written this from the perspective of a jilted wife either. <laughs> well. I was going to say. <laughs> did she abandon you for a trophy husband? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure where this came from. Well. As is often the case in stories like this, the gold-digging bimbo attempt, uh, ditched Sochan as soon as the money dried up. Broke, alone, probably impotent, and shamed by his misguided attempt to reclaim his youth by shacking up with a hussy half his age, Sochan was reduced to begging for scraps and spare change. Spangin, as the kids call it these days. So I'm told. So could you ask somebody who is on the beach with a metal detector if they're, you know, if they were calibrating their metal detector, could you ask what range do you spange in? I'm sorry. That was really bad. Wow. <laughs>
The myth says that he was so poor that he went blind. Now, I'm no ophthalmologist, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's not how that works. But hey, let's not let science get in the way of a convenient plot device. So blind and destitute, Sochan went door to door asking for food. One day, he knocked on a door and behind said door was the home of his former wife. Rather than pointing and laughing at him, shooting him with a super soaker filled with cat pee, or any of the other things that most people would do when finding either the man who abandoned you or Mormon missionaries ringing your doorbell, not that I recommend that, Sochan's wife showed him pity, invited him in, and prepared him a meal. You know how hard it is to fill a super soaker with cat pee? You gotta get really... Pity's a lot easier. That's true. (laughs) You have to have really well-trained cats. And he didn't just get the scraps he was used to getting, but she made a whole freaking feast for him. Who pudding, even the roast beast, or whatever the ancient Chinese equivalent of roast beast is... Now, of course, being blind, Sochan had no idea that this was his wife that he had abandoned who was showing him such generosity until, of course, he took a bite from the meal she had lovingly prepared for him. Instantly, his sight was restored. He saw that it was, in fact, his wife, the woman he had mistreated so terribly that was treating him far better than anyone else had. He was deeply deeply ashamed by his actions. And with seppuku not being an option as he was in China and not Japan, he instead tossed himself onto the burning stove. His wife tried to save him as his body went up in flames, but only managed to pull away a single leg. Sochan died, and because the Jade Emperor works in mysterious ways, and often just plain dumb ways, Sochan was elevated to the status of kitchen god. And his wife, Lazy Susan. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. To this day, by the way, you can see images of Sochan over the stove in many traditional Chinese homes. Also, they have those scrapers that you use to scrape the burnt crud from the stove, shaped like his leg. Oh, no way. That's awesome. How awesome is that? I want to get one of those. (laughs) So there you have it, the lousy husband who became a middle management god and heavenly narc, and as always, one more god worth not believing in. But uh, I think that's going to do it for us this time. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, you can email us your questions, comments, and so forth at doubtcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook slash doubtcast. Also, YouTube, where those all sorts of video segments for you to watch and share with your friends who don't listen to podcasts. Give them a little taste of the show. YouTube.com slash Doubtcast. Um, And until next time, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. 
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.